Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Now, farms and orchards across Hawke's Bay and Tairawhiti are still battling to return uh, to their land uh, to return their land to productivity after it was smothered in silt when Cyclone Gabriel hit almost a year ago. But yesterday, a government announcement of a $63 million package to clear silt and woody debris was met with a huge sigh of relief from those still in the thick of the clean-up. Lauren Crump reports. Paula Bearsley's 170-hectare family farm was once bursting with apples, plums, grapes and kiwifruit. But for a year now, it's been wrapped, trapped, in a dull grey blanket. Piles and piles of silt. 12,500 truckloads, to be exact. It's been absolutely overwhelming for my family. My dad um, and my mum have been here 48 years and uh, we were hit 95% of what they have is gone. It's just gone. But now some relief. The Prime Minister announcing yesterday on Paula Bearsley's farm he's delivering help they need to finally get back on their feet. You know, every announcement is um, another step forward and, uh, yeah, so looking forward to getting it all cleared and get on with our lives. It's been a year now, a very long year. And it's finally a fair chunk of change. Until now, councils have been drip-fed support, constantly running out of silt removal money and winding down operations, then gearing back up once more when the funding tap is turned on again. The stop-start approach has only been enough to get half the job done. Hawke's Bay Regional Council Chair Henny Ormsby says this lot should pretty much finish it off, but more money will be needed. We will go back for another conversation, and they know that we have that, but this is a huge chunk uh, that we've been waiting for. Contractors have been waiting for, um, so it's a brilliant result. The good news was time to coincide with yesterday's Cyclone Appreciation event, held to celebrate first responders and volunteers ahead of this week's anniversary. Hawke's Bay Fruit Growers Association President Bryden Nisbet says he learned of the funding when he bumped into Hastings Mayor Sandra Hazelhurst on his way in. Oh, listen, what a fantastic um, response from the government. You know, it's, it's well needed. It's come at a come at an ideal time. There's still heaps of de- uh, silt and debris piled up on different orchards and and uh, people's land. So it's uh, it's just a great great initiative from the government to, to keep the keep the, the bay moving. A year on from the devastation of Cyclone Gabrielle, Hawke's Bay does keep moving. It's thanks in large part to the hundreds invited by their local councils to the Tomoana showgrounds to be recognised for saving lives, housing strangers, cooking kai, shoveling silt and seeing the region through the toughest of times. The Prime Minister, Emergency Management Minister and Mayors said their thank yous too. And those in attendance reflected on the day that was, and the year that's been, over a saucy and a beer. The best thing that came out of the, the cyclone was just the communities getting together. And it's, it's still happening now, year on. Coming here today and seeing everyone together just brings so much joy. In a lot of ways it seems like uh, just yesterday and a lot of time, you know, but there's still a lot of work to do. It's really quite moving to, to, to think about how people rose to the colossal challenges that they were faced with. And we got through it because of the way people worked together. A lot of people are still dealing with the chaos of Gabrielle. So it's really nice to acknowledge everyday people who did extraordinary things.
extraordinary things during what will be a year ago on Wednesday, an extraordinary time. New Zealand has joined a chorus of countries criticising a planned Israeli ground offensive on the southern Gazan city of Rafah. The city is sheltered to more than half of the Gazan population. This after northern parts of the territory were bombarded uh, over the last few months. New Zealand's Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters put out a statement last night uh, saying he is extremely concerned. He says the protection of civilians is paramount and the humanitarian consequences of a ground offensive, quote, would be appalling. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has reiterated his plans, though, to enter Rafah and says safe zones will be set up in the north. The BBC's Barbara Plett Asher has been covering this story and is in Jerusalem. She joins us now. Uh, good morning, Barbara. Welcome to the programme. What is the latest on this uh, in Rafah? Is the attack there imminent? Well, we don't know when the incursion would take place because we haven't been given a timeline. What we have is the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, speaking very forcefully um, again today. He was doing an interview with an American television station in which he has said that he clearly intends to do this, to send Israeli troops into Rafah. He says it's necessary in order to win the war because there are still some Hamas battalions there and they need to be defeated in order to defeat Hamas. And I think they also, the Israelis, believe that some of the key leadership of Hamas is now in Rafah. And so he has been quite clear that this is what he wants to do. Having said that, he also seems to be trying to address at least some American criticism, uh, and he, he's, because the Americans had said they would not support this, uh, this kind of a move unless there was a clear plan, a proper plan, I think the words were, to protect the safety of those civilians there. As you mentioned, more than a million people have crowded into Rafah in the past four months. So it's not only a crowded situation, it's a chaotic and under-resourced one. Uh, so Mr. Mr. Netanyahu is saying, well, okay, you want a plan. We will have a plan. There will be a plan for evacuation. Uh, and he's asked his military to prepare one, uh, but he hasn't given details about what it would include and he hasn't given a timeline. How much uh, weight has been given to those assurances, given what we've seen in the past? Uh, I mean, is is it actually possible for those people in Rafa to evacuate uh, safely? Well, that is a good question. There is a lot of scepticism about that. I spoke to a very senior UN official who's basically in charge of the uh, of the UN's response to what's going on in Gaza at the moment, and he has just come back from a trip there, or a visit there, and he said, um, you know, the UN is already struggling to keep up or to, to meet the needs of the people in Rafa, which he described as a sort of last refuge for them. They are, Many of them arrived carrying very little because they had to evacuate from other parts of Gaza. It's worth noting that two-thirds of the Gazan territory had been declared uh, evacuation areas by the Israelis. So, so many people came to the south. He said uh, they were in a fragile state. Uh, and to move all of those people, which of course would be a logistical issue any time, but especially with them uh, having so little and the UN uh, is uh, struggling to have resources for the situation as it exists. He said, Rafa is our contingency plan for what's going on in Gaza. And now we're having to think about a contingency plan on our contingency plan. And we actually don't have the material to kind of move, to sort of set up a tent. He didn't say this exactly, but the idea was you can't, didn't have the material to, to move 11, uh, more than a million people and, and be able to give them what they needed. Also, it's important to note that this, that Rafa is the main point of delivery 
for humanitarian goods into Gaza. There is one other place where things are coming in, but Rafah is the main one. It's turned into a war zone. Um, it's difficult to see how the UN could respond. Okay, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for the update. That was the BBC's Barbara Plett Usher, who's been covering this story uh, from Jerusalem. Now, uh, let's talk about the Super Bowl because across the US, perhaps even across the world, football fans and Taylor Swift fans alike will be glued to their TVs today. The Super Bowl is set to kick off in Las Vegas uh, in a few hours. The San Francisco 49ers. Uh, which who are just the favourites, are taking on reigning champions, the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, perhaps better known as the team with Taylor Swift's boyfriend, yes, Travis Kelsey. Now, it is expected to be uh, a close game with the 49ers, as I say, marginally favoured uh, for the win, although in the last few games the Kansas City Chiefs uh, have certainly upset the favourites. Now, they are expecting record uh, viewer numbers and uh, we're joined now by NFL reporter Cameron Wolf. Hi, Cameron. Cameron, can you hear me all right? Hello, how are you? Yes, very good. Yes, uh, tell us, uh, this Cameron. this Super Bowl uh, is shaping up as one of the, perhaps the biggest ever? Absolutely. Uh, every year it seems like they set a new viewing record, as you just mentioned, in regards to uh, the Super Bowl. Uh, this year, you mentioned it at the top, uh, there's a different... Uh, interest. Uh, normally, you get a collection of football fans, casual sports fans, and you know people who just want to get together for a party. Uh, now you have Taylor Swift fans who certainly uh, will be all in and, and cheering for one team in particular, the Chiefs, because Travis Kelsey, her boyfriend, plays uh, for that team, and he's one of the better players. So uh, definitely a lot of uh, interest in this game, but also uh, the the uh, it's more than just football for a number of fans coming in. Yeah, and you can never quite take the, the politics out of it in America, can you? I mean, there's an element of so-called culture wars here with, I see Donald Trump's tweeting again today about Taylor Swift and helping her in the music right. industry or something. And, you know, it's got this element of uh, cultural divide about it, because particularly because the NFL is the one of the things that sort of cuts across. Yeah, it's interesting because politics are seemingly in everything in America, but sports has been the one thing that... that uh, it's been an equalizer. You see people, whether they're Republican or Democrat or black or white, um, you know, come together at rooting for their given team. And so um, football has always been an equalizer, and the Super Bowl has always been an event for everyone to come together, no matter who you're rooting for. Obviously, politicians will use it for their own aim, um, but ideally people will be uh, getting together around their houses, around buffalo wings and chips and whatever they eat, and, and celebrate and watch without many of uh, the division that sort of uh, separate us outside of this. Uh, and, and let's be clear here, if Travis Kelsey scores a touchdown, there will be a shot of Taylor Swift in the crowd, won't there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'd imagine that you see upward of 10 to 15 shots of Taylor Swift throughout the game, maybe more. I think the broadcast uh, understands how huge she is in America and elsewhere, and uh, she'll be in a sweep somewhere um, wearing some Chiefs colors and they will make sure they get really good shots of her. And maybe, uh, what, Travis Kelsey's brother will have his shirt off and be jumping out the window yeah. with a beer in his hand, will he? <laughs> yeah, I actually saw Jason Kelsey at the Pro Bowl. I asked him, and he said he didn't think that he was going to go the drunken uh, shirtless route this game. He said a lot of times it's nervous energy for him, rooting for his brother, rooting for him to win. And so sometimes that comes out in different routes, a shirtless drunken mess. And other times it may be a little bit more calm, nerve-wracking. So I get the feel he's going to do the latter today.
Yeah, just finally, I mean, in terms of the game, I mean, which way do you see this going? Patrick Mahomes has been there, done it before. He seems to be this clutch player who, who steps up in the big games. Is, is that going to be the difference? Yeah, I think a, a lot of the uh, overall takeaway is it's hard to, to pick against Patrick Mahomes. This is his fourth Super Bowl in six years as a starter. Um, he's already got two Super Bowl rings. He's on a track that nobody other than Tom Brady and, and Joe Montana has done, and he's only 28 years old. And so I think there's a special affinity of what Patrick Mahomes has done. But at the same time, the 49ers are actually the favorite in this game. And the reason why is outside of that quarterback position, the 49ers are the better team in most of the other categories. And so the belief on the 49ers side is if we can make everything else go on our end, it doesn't matter if they have the better quarterback. So I can't wait. It's actually a rematch of the Super Bowl four years ago that was in Miami that I was at, and uh, the 49ers lost that day. They hope to get revenge today. Thank you, Cameron. Enjoy the game. Cameron Wolf, the NFL reporter ahead of the Super Bowl, which uh, kicks off around midday New Zealand time. Well, universities are watching enrolments closely as the sector tries to recover from its worst year on record. The sector last year made its first collective financial loss after a drop in domestic students forced some institutions to cut staff and courses. University leaders and government funding bodies in the uh, t- the Tertiary Education Commission say the sector is struggling and it needs more money. Our education correspondent John Gerritsen reports. Leo Lancashire is one of thousands of school leavers preparing to study at a university this year. Uh, so I'm moving down to Canterbury to start a degree in engineering tomorrow. Pretty much all my friends are going to university, but I do know a few people who are doing apprenticeships and whatnot, but pretty much all of them are going to university. Enrolments like Leo's will be critical after a drop in domestic students forced big cuts at some institutions last year. The Education Ministry has forecast little change this year, but it's not clear how things are panning out because universities won't talk numbers until students confirm their enrolments by turning up for lectures. Victoria University lost money and cut staff last year, but Vice-Chancellor Nick Smith says things are now looking better. We're actually quite positive this year. Um, We're quite positive in our local Wellington region. We're quite positive domestically, and we're also starting to see the international students come back. And while it's hard to know whether they will come back to what were pre-COVID levels, it certainly makes quite a big difference at this point in time, given the domestic funding regime. In fact, Nick Smith says the university is expecting a small surplus this year. AUT Vice-Chancellor Damon Salesa says his university is also expecting a surplus. We've got strong positive signals for 2024, but it is very early to tell. And because of COVID and the significant changes we've seen, and enrolment patterns in the last few years, it's very difficult to do strong year-on-year comparisons. And so, yeah, the, the best thing I could say is that signs are positive. The Tertiary Education Commission warned the government last year that the sector is under unprecedented financial pressure. Victoria's Nick Smith agrees. I think it's been under stress for actually a very long time. You know, we've had a system which for the better part of a decade has been funded at half the rate of inflation. While that funding envelope has decreased... It's put pressure on the kinds of cross-subsidisations that university have used to fund things which might be very important but not revenue generating. He says universities have plugged the gap in government funding with international student fees, but the pandemic has shown that's a risky source of income. Damon Salesa says COVID amplified the funding problem. Universities had to make some decisions about what they 
uh, could no longer afford to do. And so if universities decide not to do something, then what's at risk is a kind of capability question and a capacity question. Um, so there are risks when you underfund a system. Damon Salesa says New Zealanders need to understand the value universities provide for the economy and society. That was our education correspondent, John Gerritsen, with universities were watching enrolment levels closely uh, with the sector recovering from its worst year on record last year. Good luck to all of those students heading off to university for the first time and, of course, to the parents who are waving them off too. It's a big, big time. Speaking of big times, New Zealand pole vaulter Eliza McCartney has flung herself to victory at the World Athletics Indoor Gold Meet in Leauvin in France. The 27-year-old Rio Olympic bronze medalist cleared a world-leading 4.84 metres. That is the sixth best vault of her career. That success, of course, stoking optimism. McCartney could be in the mix at the World Athletics Indoor Championships in Glasgow next month and the Paris Olympic Games later this year. We're joined now by Eliza McCartney. Uh, welcome to the programme, Eliza, and congratulations. Oh, kia ora. Thank you very much for having me. And yes, thank you. It's um, been a really cool um, competition that I've just had over the weekend. Yeah, talk us through uh, that vault, uh, because you had a couple of second attempts at some of the lower vaults. It wasn't all smooth sailing. How did it go? Yeah, it was interesting. It's funny, in um, pole vault and in technical events, sometimes it um, does look a little bit like this. And funnily enough, it was actually, um, I was so on that whole competition. And because it was going so well, I was actually having to work things out as I went um, which happens sometimes earlier on in the year and in the season. So, um, yes, it looked a bit funny on the scorecard, but um, it was incredibly positive. And even if I hadn't cleared the 84, I would have been really, really happy. So, yeah, things have just been progressing so well in training. Um, and I was very well prepared for this competition. Uh, and I got out there and I started warming up and I was just on fire. It was fantastic. So it gave me a real opportunity to iron out some things ahead of the World Indoor Champs. Uh, so, yeah, I was really pleased with that. Because you have had uh, your share of injuries, uh, but you've just felt, do you just know on the day this is going to be a good day before you've even started? Certainly sometimes. Um, I can't say it happens that way every time. Sometimes you go out into a competition and you're not feeling great, but you end up jumping really, really well. And sometimes you feel really good and it just doesn't go your way. So um, it doesn't always work that way. But Something was just really on yesterday and I just I, I had a really good feeling about the comp, mainly because I just felt so prepared from how well training had been going. Um, so I just I did feel that I was in a really good place. Um, my body is in a fantastic place, which is always a really exciting thing for me these days. Um, and so everything is just um, on the up at the moment. And I just I'm really pleased with the timing, given it's an important year, but also just given that we've got um, a world championships um, just what three weeks away, I suppose now. So. Yeah, it's, it's it's an exciting time and, and particularly because women's pole vault at the moment is really, really strong, um, which is maybe not unusual in an Olympic year, but it's pretty cool to be a part of that, to be honest. So you've mentioned those uh, world indoor champs coming up as well in Glasgow. What are your goals from here for the rest of the year? Well, yes, it's a big year ahead for sport, um, but the first thing is to get through this season um, with these World Indoor Championships. Um, it is one of my favourite competitions, the World Indoor Champs, and so I'm really looking forward to be able to do that. Um, and really that's a nice, actually, kind of almost like a practice run um, ahead of the Paris Olympics because the World Indoor Champs is a straight final. They only take the 12 best vaulters in the world. Um, and so it's kind of like um, what an Olympic final could be like. So it's a really, really lovely practice in the year of the Olympics. 
Um, and then the rest of the year we'll be building towards the Olympics and um, it feels quite far away at the moment. Um, but so far it's just been such a positive start to the year that I'm, I'm feeling really confident that if we can continue um, the way we've been going and really working hard to stay healthy um, and able to, able to vault and compete as much as I need, then I'm feeling yeah really positive that I'll be able to go out in Paris and just be able to jump and enjoy it and, and I suppose uh, do myself justice in some ways, just be able to get out there and, and do what I know I'm capable of. That would be really cool. Yeah, so what is, we know what you're capable of. 4.94 was your uh, national record. Uh, can you jump that high again? Uh, I think I absolutely it's within my capability, 100%. Um, I don't know if it will happen this year. I don't know if it will ever happen, but I know it's absolutely within my capability and that's what you strive for in sport. You keep going for that next notch that you know is is part of your potential and you're always trying to seek it. Hey, well, congratulations for that uh, result and it is uh, lovely to hear you so positive, uh, especially with such a big year ahead of you uh, competition-wise. Thanks very much for your time this morning. That was Eliza McCartney, uh, who has won gold at the World Athletics Indoor um, Meet in France. First, keeping the Pacific nuclear-free in line with the Rarotonga Treaty was a recurring theme from the leaders of Tonga, Cook Islands and Samoa, to New Zealand's Pacific Mission. Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters and Health and Pacific uh, People's Minister Shane Reti are back in Aotearoa, New Zealand after a whirlwind trip last week of three nations in three days. The New Zealand ministers reiterated to Pacific leaders that they care about the region and were indicating their support by visiting in the first 50 days of the new government. RNZ Pacific's Alicia Foon covered the tour. The New Zealand government's Pacific Mission wrapped up on Saturday with the final leg in Samoa. Over the course of the trip, defence and security in the region has been discussed with the leaders of Tonga, Cook Islands and Samoa. In Apia, the Samoa Prime Minister Fiame Naomi Mata'afa addressed regional concerns about AUKUS, the security deal between Britain, United States and Australia. New Zealand is considering joining Pillar 2 of the agreement, a non-nuclear option, but critics have said this could be seen as Aotearoa's rubber-stamping Australia acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. Both Australia and New Zealand are members of the regional organisation, the Pacific Island Forum, and we would hope that both the administrations will ensure that the provisions under the Rarotonga Treaty are con- taken into consideration with these new arrangements. New Zealand's previous Labour government was more cautious in its approach to joining AUKUS, because it said Pillar 2 had not been clearly defined, but the coalition government is looking to take action. Prime Minister Fiame says she does not want the Pacific to become a region affected by more nuclear weapons. As a region that has been impacted by nuclear effect, still ongoing, especially in the North Pacific with the Marshall Islands, and the semblance of it still in the South with the Tahiti, that we cannot not present that voice in these international arrangements. We don't want the Pacific to be seen as an area that you know, people will take licence of uh, nuclear uh, arrangements. The Treaty of Rarotonga prohibits signatories, which include Australia and New Zealand, from placing nuclear weapons within the South Pacific. Cook Island's Prime Minister Mark Brown says Pacific leaders were in agreement over the security matter. 
Well, I think our stand mirrors that of all the Pacific Island countries where we want to keep the Pacific region nuclear weapons free, nuclear free. Uh, and that hasn't changed. It was discussed at the Leaders Forum that possibly a review or a revisit, if you like, of the Rarotonga Treaty uh, should take place, an open discussion with our partners such as New Zealand, Australia and others uh, on these matters. Uh, it's timely that we have them now moving forward. Last year, Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka proposed a Pacific peace zone, which was discussed during the Pacific Islands Forum in the Cook Islands. This year, Tonga will be hosting, and matters of security and defence involving AUKUS will likely be a major talking point. Tonga's acting Prime Minister, Samuel Vaipulu, acknowledged New Zealand's sovereignty. We don't uh, interfere with what other countries do. It's their sovereignty and suggested Atalanoa was the best process. Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters and Health and Pacific Peoples Minister Shane Reti reiterated that they care and have listened to the needs outlined by the Pacific leaders. They say New Zealand will deliver on funding promises to support improvements in the areas of health, education and security of the region. That is uh, RNZ Pacific's Alicia Foon there. We'll speak to the Labour Party's Foreign Affairs spokesperson, uh, David Parker, after eight this morning on some of the issues touched uh, on that report, in particular around AUKUS and whether New Zealand should join that pillar too or not. Uh, Let's go back to the issue of Olympic prospects because we were talking about Eliza McCartney's uh, stunning showing in the pole vault. Uh, Well, there's been another impressive performance too this morning. Dunedin swimmer Erica Fairweather has won her first ever World Championship gold medal overnight. The 20-year-old won the 400 metres freestyle final in Doha, finishing in just under four minutes. Fairweather had a winning margin of 2.18 seconds over China's uh, Li Bingzhi. World record holder Ariana Titmus and American sensation Katie Ledecky didn't compete, but she's still shaping up as a real medal uh, hope for the Olympics later this year. Joining us from Doha is Gary Francis, the Olympic program lead for Swimming New Zealand. Good morning, Gary. Put this win into some context for us. Uh, those two big names weren't there, but nonetheless a fast time and uh, the gold medal here. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having us on. Um, yeah, really fast time. Uh, that's a PB for Erica. Obviously, another New Zealand record. Um, and, um, you know, to put it in perspective, um, it's, I think it's the fourth fourth fastest time ever, maybe the fifth. But, you know, the, the, that event at the moment is is actually uh, completely full of the, of the all-time greats in the event. Um, and Erica's right up there. So, yeah, it, the, the, the two big guns and three big guns weren't there, but Erica's pushing closer and closer, and tonight was a, another huge breakthrough. So where is she at in terms of her development and momentum going in towards July and Paris? So are you hopeful that she's on sort of a, an upward path here and the others are on a downward path and that she could you know, get into the medals? Well, um, she's definitely on an upward path. Um, every time she swims, she seems to swim faster. But... Uh, Probably the, the the biggest problem we have is that um, the the other three are well certainly um, two of the other three are still on an upward path and um, Katie Ledecky just doesn't ever seem to get any slower so um, it's going to be you know it's still going to be very tough for Erica to uh, to win a medal um, but she is very very capable tonight showed that um, slightly different situation she went in as favourite tonight which is a brand new situation for her and handled it brilliantly swam you know swam the house down 
Um, and and it's probably a shame that some of the others weren't there because I think that it probably would have dragged us through to maybe going even faster. So talk about that. How fast? So Katie Ledecky's what three or three seconds or so faster? Is that right? If you if you put them head to head at the moment. Yeah, at the moment. So um, uh, Titmus is the fastest at three fifty five, and then Ledecky and uh, Summer McIntosh, the Canadian, have both swum three fifty six. And Erica's at three fifty nine. So it sounds like a big gap at the moment, but Erica is closing that gap. Um, I think that tonight uh, tonight was a fantastic swim. Uh, you know, it was as, it was as good a swim as we you know we've ever seen from a New Zealander. Um, but um, I think that tonight had uh, had she been pushed by the others, I think there was possibly a three fifty eight in there, and and that's given you know given her enough time to uh, to get closer to that three fifty six three fifty five mark, which is probably what it's going to take to win the gold medal. In, in, um, As in, you say, in it's, it's sort of unfortunate timing that she's up against such uh, a field in, at, at her peak. Is there any other event that she could swim in that the, where there isn't two or three uh, world-class <laughs> um, swimmers like that? Yeah, unfortunately, Ledecky also is the is the queen of the pool in the 800 and the 1500. Um, um, uh, uh, Erica... Erica is very, very competitive in in the 200 freestyle, the 400, and the 800, um, and it is a you know it has a genuine chance to uh, to to perhaps win a medal in in any one of those events um, at the Olympics. But women's freestyle swimming is is has never been stronger. It's um, incredibly strong and deep uh, in all distances uh, at the moment. Um, th- this is this is the the era of of women freestylers, um, and um, if Erica was in any other era, uh, she's likely to have been the number one and and you know being considered yeah. the, you know an, an all time great. As it happens, she's just one of the greats uh, in this. That's this tough, isn't it? Era. Have you spoken to yeah, her yeah. since the race and uh, gauged how yeah. she's feeling? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I spoke to her briefly after she was extremely happy. Um, I, you know, it's uh, my job's not to get to uh, to to to, uh, to get too involved straight afterwards, and that's that's for her and her coach, uh, you know, to enjoy that moment. Um, but she was, yeah, she's really, really happy. She, she, you know, she knows that she's done a great job. She's swum her best time, and um, uh, and I don't think that. The, the true significance of the history of it, of what she's achieved, is going to sink in yet. Um, and she's also, uh, when I left, I, I left while Erica was still, um, she was being dragged off by the uh, the drug testers for drug testing, and she still had to finish her, her swim recovery because she's obviously got a big week ahead of her. She's got the 200 in a couple of days' time. Then the day after that, she's in the four by two relay, and then the day after that, well, and the day after that is the eight hundred. So, um, so she's, you know, today was just the start of a huge week, um, but what a great start! Yep, fantastic stuff. Thank you very much for that. That is Gary Francis, the Olympic program lead for swimming in New Zealand, just commenting on Erica Fairweather's uh, outstanding. Uh, first ever World Championships gold medal win overnight in the four hundred meter freestyle. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 